Our message this morning is entitled Redemption from the book of Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. As we turn back to the book of Titus chapter 2, just to remind you about what we've been considering together over the past few months, uh, nine weeks in specific, we've been studying this book together and over the past two Sundays we took a special focus on verses 11 through 15. And we've been in those passages now. This will be our third week. And as we got to this portion of Scripture, we could have taken these thoughts in one message, but there are so many wonderful and encouraging things found in the language of these verses that one message became two and Two messages became three, and here we are in the third message from this run of verses. And I think that was definitely of the Lord, and I pray that you were encouraged as we, cons- as we considered some of these wonderful concepts as we did. Just to review what we read and what we talked about the last two Sundays in particular, God's grace brings salvation. Salvation is by grace, not by works. It isn't a combined effort of grace and work, but salvation is completely by the grace of God. All types of people have been saved by God. You have the aged men, the young men, aged women, young women, servants, and masters, all types of people have been saved by the grace of God. Number three, salvation teaches us some things. God's grace that brings salvation brings salvation, and in bringing salvation to us, there's a change made in the individual to whom grace has brought salvation. Specifically, we are taught to deny ungodliness, and we consider the fact that the laws of God are written on our hearts and our minds, and we now know that it is wrong to steal and to kill and to lie, and we feel bad when we do such things, though the carnal nature yearned for such things, and that was the only nature that we had prior to being born of the Spirit of God. And so we are taught in that sense to deny ungodliness. There's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that begins the moment a person is born of the Spirit. And there's a lamentation of sin that is a part of their overall being after they are saved again by the grace of God. And then we considered the fact that not only do we hunger and thirst after righteousness, and we have a conscience that feels the sting of sin. We understand that we disappoint the Lord, and we yearn to do better. Many times we fail. So often we fail. But we also, in addition to that, wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ from glory. Or to put it in another way, we yearn for deliverance after we are born of the Spirit of God. There's a part of every child of God that just wants to be out of this world. We need it. We crave it. Now, I'm reminded of the words of a hymn that just struck into my mind. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all is boasted, pomp and show. It doesn't matter what your persuasion is as far as your thought process and the things that you like and dislike and agree with and disagree with. Over the past 
couple of years, if my hope were only in this world, then I would be of all men most miserable. All the chaos and destruction and heartbreak and disappointment. We really live in a fallen world, and there is no peace for us in this world outside of Christ, and that peace that we have in Christ is rooted in the reality of His return. And as we talked about last week, we're saved by hope, the anticipation, the earnest expectation that He's coming again, and when He comes again, He will deliver us from this world, and we will be with him in glory. And we yearn for that. Every born-again person has some part in them that simply is not content in this world. We numb it with stuff. We temporarily alleviate the severity of it with distraction. But at the end of the day, in the heart of a born-again person... There's simply this desire to be someplace better. And that someplace is with our Lord in glory. We yearn for deliverance and we wander in this world as strangers and pilgrims. Sometimes strangers and pilgrims get too comfortable. If you want a good example of that, go back to the book of Genesis and read about Lot. He pitches his tent towards Sodom and the next thing you know he finds himself in the gate of Sodom, living in Sodom. And it didn't turn out very well for his family. He became very content in the Sodom of this world. All the while, what does Peter say about him? His righteous soul was vexed by the things that he saw, the things that he experienced. You wouldn't get that by reading the book of Genesis by itself. You don't get that in that understanding, reading Lot's experience in Genesis But when Peter adds his commentary to that, he says, through the Holy Spirit, that that righteous man, that just man's righteous soul was vexed. Even distracted in Sodom, Lot yearned for someplace else. We have that hope and that desire, that anticipation, because we've been born of the Spirit of God, because the grace of God has brought salvation. Last week, our focus was on the second coming of Christ itself, that event, that day, the day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night. This event that the hearts of God's children yearn for, even if their mind is distracted. Again, there's always that burning in you. A little baby, John the Baptist, leaps for joy in his mother's womb when Mary walks into the room that John's mother was in. What caused him to do that? This yearning from the soul for the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of that day. The fact that the second coming of Christ will glorify him. Why will it glorify him? Because he will have full victory in the deliverance of his people and the vengeance upon his enemies. He takes his children to be with him in glory. He takes full possession of the people for whom he died upon the cross. And at the same time, he avenges himself and his people on his enemies. The devil and his angels and the goats, those that have slaughtered his people and persecuted his people, have mocked and scoffed at his people. 
He will judge them in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And because of that, his victory and his vengeance, that day will be a day that glorifies him. Today, we look at the price that had to be paid for all of this to be a reality. There had to be a price that was paid. You see, God is a merciful God, and we love passages like 1 John chapter 4. God is love, but at the same time, God is a God of wrath. God is a holy God. His wrath is because of His holiness and our sinfulness. God is holy. God is just. God is a God of justice and judgment. And because of that, He's couldn't simply allow us access into his presence as people that he loved without satisfying his holy indignation against our sin. And so today we look at the price that had to be paid, Christ giving himself upon the cross. Let's read our passage today. We'll begin in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, listen, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. The verse that we consider today in specific is verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. As we read that verse in your hearing and we introduce it to you today as our study passage, as we go through this and we have some 45 minutes to consider this passage together, which on Flint River time, that's about an hour, We want to take this a statement at a time. We'll consider subjects such as the identity of Christ. Who gave himself for us? Now, that's a statement of affirmation in this verse, but you can use it as a question. Who gave himself for us? Concepts such as where he was given for us. Where was this offering made that would redeem us? For whom was Christ given? Because there's an us there. We'll consider concepts such as redemption. We'll consider the full and complete atonement. Because after all, they're saved from all iniquity. And lastly, 
the result of that that He expects out of our lives. People, peculiar people, that are zealous of good works. Let's begin digging into it. Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, the who in this passage is, as you just read, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, or our Savior Jesus Christ in this passage, you have included all of the fundamental characteristics of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That is the single most important question that has ever been asked among men. If Jesus is merely a Jewish teacher in the first century, then we are yet in our sins, we are yet guilty, we have no hope of eternal life, we have no future with God, our religion is vain, which means pointless and fruitless, purposeless, we might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And according to Scripture, after death is what? The judgment. That doesn't sound like a very hopeful message to me. But if Jesus is exactly who He said He was, then we have all confidence that as we leave this world, we will be with Him in glory. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of God. And all of those titles are crucial and important to understanding exactly who He is and what He did for us. Jesus, first of all, the name means Savior, and it comes from the same Old Testament word as the name Joshua. Comes into the Greek language as Jesus, and it comes into English from Greek as Jesus. You don't have to call upon his name in the original Hebrew pronunciation in the Hebrew tongue for him to hear you. He knows you're talking to him when you call his name Jesus. How do you know that? Because when the New Testament was written, it's not the Old Testament word for Joshua. It's the Greek word, Jesus. It's not that we have to pronounce it originally and phonetically for him to hear us or for us to know him. John the Baptist didn't know the name Jesus, and he leapt for joy in his mother's womb. Jesus, who is called Christ. Little ones, the word Christ in Jesus Christ isn't his last name. As Ben Winslet, Winslet is my last name. Hewland Chambers, Chambers is his last name, but Christ is his title. And the word is an adjective. Now you might say that's a, that's a loud preacher. Loud is an adjective. That's a red car. That's a brick building. That's a hot day. How many of you would like a hot day? It's going to be in the 60s this week. We're going down to the pool after this past week. It was a snowy day. A, district, a descriptive term. Christ as a word, is an adjective. Jesus Christ, the Christ. The concept of Christ hails back to the Old Testament 
and the promise of the anointed one, because the word Christ means anointed. And so as Jesus is Christ, Jesus is anointed, all of the Old Testament passages that foretold of the coming of God's anointed one to be the savior of God's people. They're pointing to the Christ. And so Christ means anointed. Jesus Christ means Jesus anointed. And we ought to use that name with all reverence and dignity. Nothing is more like nails on a chalkboard to me than to hear someone use that title in vain As a cuss word, when they take his name in vain, does it bother you? I hope it bothers you. Let let me just tell you, that word is not to be used as a pejorative or a curse word when we're angry at something. It's the name above all names. And one could go on an hour-long tirade about taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't text OMG. I don't say the Lord's name in vain because it is sin. This is the name above all names. Jesus, who is Christ, the anointed Jesus. Jesus, the Christ. This Jesus, who is Christ, is the Messiah, which means that he is the chosen Savior of God's people. He is Messiah. He is the Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the promised one, He that should come. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, His human identity is Jesus of Nazareth, which is prophetic in and of itself. Jesus is called in the Old Testament multiple times the branch. And when it says that he's from Nazareth, that's quoted as a fulfillment of prophecy in the Gospels. And if you go back to the Old Testament, there's no scripture that invokes that title or that term. And what it has reference to, that he's from Nazareth, is the branch. Because the word Nazareth, the root of that is netzer, which means green or branch. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the branch. There was a boy, a little baby, born two millennia ago in Bethlehem who grew up in Nazareth, who was Savior. As we think about the question, who is Jesus, and we already said that this is the most important question that could ever be asked In the book of Matthew chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, just referencing it, Jesus asks, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, some say this, some say that, some say this, some say that. John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. Whom do ye say that I am? Peter answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells him, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. As we think about Jesus, who is Jesus? Who gave himself for us? The first thing that we want to emphasize is his humanity. Jesus Christ was a human, a son of David. And as we 
have already referenced today, He is the Son of Man. There are two titles of Christ in Scripture that were used of Him involving sonship. He's the Son of Man, and He is the Son of God. And both of those titles convey a fundamental part of His nature. Son of Man presents to us His humanity. Son of God presents unto us His deity or His divinity. First of all, as we think about His sonship in that sense, He was a human being, the son of David. Let's look at the book of Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. You might think this is a Christmas text, but this is a Bible text, and it doesn't matter if it's December or February or June or July. You can always preach from the angel's words to Mary. You can always read and enjoy the angel's words to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a woman espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that are highly favored, H-A-I-L, all hail. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Now to be very clear, we do not believe because the Bible does not teach that Mary was sinless. That's a concept that when it comes to the virgin birth is usually referred to by some as the immaculate conception. And they say that Mary was sinless and so Jesus was conceived by one who was immaculate. But Mary was a sinner, a descendant of her parents. She had the same nature of sin that we have And she refers to God in this exchange. Look at verse 47 as she goes in unto Elizabeth. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary needed a Savior like you and I need a Savior. But on the other hand, this is the most blessed woman who has ever lived. I submit to you young ladies that she is a picture of godliness. The angel comes to her and she says, Be it un- according to thy word, thy handmaiden. To the angel, she fully submits to everything that God had told her was going to happen to her. She believes the words of the angel. You know, earlier in Luke chapter 1, you have where the angel comes to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's father argues with the angel. How's this going to happen? We're old. That you're going to give us a child when we're old and barren. And the angel says, well, I'll give you a sign. You'll be mute and perhaps even deaf until the time that the child is born. Be careful asking for a sign because it might not be the one that you want. But when this angel comes to Mary, she's in complete submission to everything that God has in store for her. She is highly favored among women. She has found favor with the Lord. Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Verse 45. 
When this angel speaks to Mary, he says, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. David is, in a sense, the father of Jesus. How is that? David had been dead for many years, and Jesus had no biological father because Jesus is a descendant of David. Biologically, through Mary, he was biologically the offspring of Mary. God did not artificially create a human being within the womb of Mary with no connection to the human race. He had to become like unto his brethren, which I take to mean that the cell became, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that baby, yet without a father, in the sense of reproduction. But in a sense, he's the son of David. Because David was promised that the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, would come from his descendants and sit upon his throne And what God had in store was so much greater than what they understood and what David understood. Oh, not a son like Solomon who comes and sits upon the throne of David for a generation and have highs and lows and successes and mistakes, victories and failures. No, this son of David will sit upon the throne of David And he will rule and he will reign over his people forever. And of the end of his dominion, there shall be no end. I'm quoting scripture with every statement I just made. He sits upon the throne of David as a son of David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. What does that present unto us? It presents unto us Jesus as a human being, the son of David. We would also point out that, as we so often do anytime we talk about the birth of Christ into the world and his humanity, particularly in December, that he was also the adopted son of Joseph. And through the laws of adoption, he had the right to... Joseph's heritage as well. Joseph and Mary both being offspring of David. Christ is the son of David. These first words that the angel spoke unto Mary convey his humanity, the son of David. At the same time, When Mary begins to ask him, how shall these things be? And we're considering who gave himself for us. He was also divine and deity. Mary asked, how shall this be? She's not asking in unbelief. She's asking in faith because she hadn't known a man. 
The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus is not only human, Jesus is deity. He is divine. The divinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, as the angel spoke to Joseph, telling him about all the things that God had in store for his family, as he was mindful to put Mary away privately because she was carrying Jesus, Joseph believed there had been some unfaithfulness on her part. The angel says, Be not afraid to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Listen to this next part. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, of the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. The point has been made many times, and it needs to be made many times more. Emmanuel does not mean simply God with us in the sense of if he be for us, who can be against us? But God with us in the sense that the Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate in human flesh. The Word made flesh. The second person of the Godhead incarnate in human form. God walking among men. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was The Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. The Word was with God, He was God, He was with God, and the Word was made flesh. The Word they're having reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Who gave himself for us? Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of God. Fully human, fully divine. Our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Next we consider, where did Jesus give Himself for us? Now this is an important question to ask because there are all kinds of strange ideas about redemption that have cropped into and sprung up within Christianity. Even in our very hymnals, right here, there's a hymn called Gethsemane. And I don't want to sing that hymn called Gethsemane. Why do I not want to sing that hymn called Gethsemane? Because it talks about our sins being placed on Him in Gethsemane. Our sins were placed on Him at Calvary. And so when that song is called out, it hasn't been called out in several years, I will ask you to supplement the word Gethsemane for the word Calvary. And we did that the last time we sang it. I think everybody was so appalled we never sang it again. How verses or hymns like that make it into our hymnals? I have no idea. I'll tell you why. They don't ask me to make the hymnals. They ask me to make hymnals. 
It'd be the best hymnal that's ever been made. It'd be huge. Anyway, no one would make it like I make it. That's a joke, but not as well. He gave himself for us on the cross, not Gethsemane, not at any other point in his ministry, not in the scourging even, but he gave himself for us on the cross of Calvary at the place of the skull, Golgotha. And this refers to the divine transaction between God the Father and God the Son, the Son stepping into our place as if He had lived our lives, the Father judging Him as if He were guilty of all of our sins, suffering all of our condemnation in our stead. He gave Himself for us on the cross. Now, thinking about the cross, and we'll resist the temptation to spend too much time on this point, the cross is so important to Christian theology. Of all the symbols of Christianity through the last two millennia, the cross is the most consistent symbol of Christianity. You have the symbol of a fish, that he makes us fishers of men. You have the symbol of an empty tomb. Think about the symbols in Old Testament Judaism, the Ark of the Covenant. That could be a symbol of Christ because Christ is our mercy seat. But when it comes to the symbol of Christianity, what is the symbol of Christianity through Christian history? It is the cross. Some of you probably have a cross on your necklace under the jewel on my class ring. There's a cross you could peer through and look at. It permeates our symbolism, our thought, our speech. But what is the cross? Well, to Jesus in his day, it was a heinous, hideous, painful device invented to torture condemned criminals to death. And that symbol of execution became the symbol of hope and redemption, not because of the cross itself, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did upon the cross. There's victory on the cross. It was so symbolic of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that Jesus instructed his disciples to take up their, our respective crosses each and every day and follow him. Take up our own symbol of execution, symbolizing that we put to death the lusts of the flesh every day, or we're commanded to, and it symbolizes the shame, listen to me, the shame of Christian life in a world that is antithetical to everything that your God holds true. Through your parents' and grandparents' generation, it was appealing to be a Christian in America. If you were not a Christian, people looked at you in a bad light. 
You think about it. Go to old television shows. Look on Andy Griffith or, or some good wholesome television show from back before color was invented. You know, that was life, right? Everything was in black and white, and then suddenly color was invented. No, it's just the television was black and white. But you go to old black and white TV, and you notice how church was just an everyday part of life in places like Mayberry. Why is that? Because church was an everyday part of life in human or in American society. It's not that way anymore. Church participation over the past decades has consistently gone down. And throughout the past year, there are many people in Christianity who have not darkened the door of their church since the shutdown was reversed. Sadly, churches produce live streams for their membership, and I'm very encouraged by your participation in those. But statistically, a great number of Christians didn't even bother watching the live stream from their church. In other words, when the shutdown happened, they just sat home. And they didn't even care. Go to the lake. Go fishing. Didn't stop them from gathering at the ballpark behind the church. I can tell you that. It's amazing to me. We got a shutdown and we're meeting in the parking lot because we can't be in the same building together, but they're still playing ball. What's up with that? Well, maybe it tells us what the real religion in this world is, particularly in our country. Be careful. Let me watch it. Back up. Back up, preacher. Back it up, Terry. The cross was a symbol of shame. When you carried a cross, you read what they did to Jesus as he carries that cross. They gnash on him in their teeth. They cast cruel inserts, uh, insults to him as he walks through the masses of people carrying that cross. They know, he knows, everyone knows that he's going to his death. And they mock him and they deride him. That's what it means to take up your cross. The world's not going to like you and love you because of your Christ because of his cross, because of your Christianity, but you will be an ostracized person in this world. We kind of think in this day and age, politicians don't care anymore about the church. Let me tell you, they probably never did to begin with. It just wasn't popular that they didn't. Read Psalm 73 and take a thorough analysis of world government with Psalm 73 in mind. I'm serious. That's a homework assignment. Go read it. Read Psalm 73. Why is it that we have bad politicians? Because Psalm 73... Never been, by and large, good, wholesome leaders in this country. Half the founding fathers weren't even Christians. They were deists and Freemasons and all kinds of other things. Understand, when some of them said endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, they didn't mean the same thing as you and I mean when we say creator. And believing in a generic deity is not the same thing as being a Christian. You know, all kinds of people say, I believe in God. Tell me what you think about Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, as we think about the cross, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the what? He endured the cross. Where was redemption accomplished? It was accomplished on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Where did that take place? It took place upon the cross. 1 Corinthians says much about the cross. 
Some of my reading this week has been through the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul says that Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect in your hearing, none effect in your hearing. Nothing that I do can invalidate the work of Jesus on the cross, but I can present it in such a way that it doesn't affect your life. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the what? The preaching of the cross. In this chapter, you have over and over references to the cross, to the crucifixion. We preach Christ crucified under the Jews, a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, foolishness. It's still foolishness to Western thinkers today. Chapter 2 and verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross, the crucifixion. He gave himself for us where? Upon the cross. Galatians chapter 6. Speaks about the fact that we are persecuted for the sake of the cross. Jesus gave himself for us upon the cross. Continuing, because we still have several points. One of the most crucial questions that you might have now is, who is the us? We sang... There is a fountain filled with blood. And when it came to the verse about the dying thief rejoicing to see that fountain in his day, the words after that is, I hope that blood was shed for me. And as we know, the word hope there is an earnest expectation. We have that sweet hope, that anticipation, that desire, that confidence, that knowledge that his blood was shed for us. The us here has reference to his own people. Now, as we say his own people, understand that his people could have reference to one of two things. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, his own there being the nation of Israel. But as we know, through a overwhelming bulk of New Testament texts, the nation of Israel, in and of themselves, do not comprise his people. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel, as Paul said in Romans. You're not of my sheep, as Jesus said to some Jews in John 10. You're of your father the devil, as Jesus said to some in John 8. And then we read, other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, in John chapter 10. Who are the people for whom Christ died? Jesus died for his people. He gave himself for us, his elect for whom he died. Matthew one twenty one. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Listen, for he shall save his people from their sins. His people. They were his people when he came into the world. 
They were his people from eternity past because God the Father had chosen them in him before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians chapter 1. In the book of John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Who will be drawn into Christ? No man can come unto me except drawn of the Father, he would say. Who will be drawn into him? Those that were given to him of his Father, and they will in no wise be cast out. They are secure in him. He'll lose nothing, but he'll raise it up again at the last day. In John chapter 17, as we think about the people that belong to Christ, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, Jesus speaking to his Father in prayer, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus saved his people people who were given him of the Father before the foundation of the world. Now, as we think about that along those lines, you'll notice a word that we find in the English translation of this passage that Paul wrote, a word that we use commonly today, but we use in a different way than Paul used it here, in a different way than it was used when it was translated in 1611. Who gave himself for us, we know who the us is, that he might redeem us, we'll comment on that in a minute, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. The us is the peculiar people. Now I have known, and we use this word peculiar today to mean unusual, strange, odd. I have known some unusual, strange odd Christians. I can tell you stories. And as odd of Christians as I have known, I have known some even more unusual primitive Baptists. Oh yes, I can tell you stories. There are some unusual primitive Baptists. But when we read a peculiar people in this passage, we don't have reference to, Paul does not have reference to strange, odd, or weird. The word peculiar here means particular. Particular. I love that it's coupled in this verse with the word redeemed, which we'll comment on in a minute. He redeemed... A particular people. As a body of people who believes in the doctrines of grace, you know, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, irresistible grace, preservation of the saints. When we come to that L, limited atonement, its synonym is particular redemption. And people say, well, where is that in the Bible? It never says particular redemption. No, it says, it says that... The peculiar people are redeemed. If you want to call it peculiar redemption, call it peculiar redemption. And then when they say, what does that mean? Say peculiar means particular. Yes, particular redemption is in the Bible. 
particular, peculiar, a particular people. Now, that word particular, peculiar, not only does it mean particular, the Oxford English Dictionary gives us the definition at the time of its translation as that which is one's own private property. That little parcel of land with the house that I own is my particular property. If you look it up on the tax map, it belongs to Ben and Rachel Winslet. Now, in all actuality, it belongs to Redstone Federal Credit Union until Ben and Rachel Winslet finish paying it off, which is about a decade away. So they call it mortgage because mort is death and you pay it till you die. That's not really why they call it mortgage. Might as well be. It's my particular property. It belongs to me. It is one's own private property. Now, this is the sense of the Greek word that translates peculiar. Again, peculiar meaning one's own private property, their particular property. We are... Jesus' own private property. We are his peculiar, particular people, the people that belong to Jesus. Which brings us to the question, how do we belong to him? We'll answer that in a moment. This Greek word is interesting, and I enjoyed studying it. Periosion. And it comes from two words. One meaning peri, which is about or around, and another one, which means am. And these words combine together to have reference to the personal private property of a person. By the way, that second word, which is amy in the Greek language, is the word for am every time Jesus said, I am. And it has reference to the state of being. They're simple words. You read these words, even today, these words and prefixes are used in the Greek language today. They're spelled a little bit different, but they're used nearly every sentence over and over. It's as common to them as the or is for us or am. How many times do you say, I am doing X, Y, Z? That's how common this word is there. But they have reference to, when combined as one word, the particular ownership of something or someone. Which brings us to the concept of, which is the title of today's message, redemption. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a particular, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The word redeem we use commonly today, and it means to buy something back that was lost. If you go to the pawn shop and you need some quick cash and you take an old guitar and you say, how much will you give me for the guitar? They say, I'll give you this much. And you have so-and-so days until you can come back and what? Redeem it. It was yours to begin with. You pawned it and you can come back and you can redeem it. If you have a mortgage, I already mentioned mortgages today, and the bank repossesses your home, you have in the state of Alabama a one-year right of redemption where you can come back, 
pay the debt that you owed and take back possession, you can redeem that property. To redeem something means to buy it back. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7, we find the statement, For ye are bought with a price. In chapter 6, Paul's meaning and the purpose of writing is to avoid sin. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which ye have of your own which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God's not plural. God's possessive. G-O-D apostrophe S. In other words, your spirit and your body belong to God. Why is there a resurrection of the body at the end of time if our souls go to be with Jesus at death? You ever wonder that question? Why? Why not just go be with him forever and who cares about the rest of this world? Because he paid for your body. He came in a body. He suffered in a body. He was buried as a body. His soul was with God the moment that he died. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The body was placed in the ground. The body was resurrected. Our bodies will be placed in the ground. Our bodies will be resurrected because Jesus paid for us body, soul, and spirit. Our spirit and our body belong to God. They are God's. He owns them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In reference to servitude, and we went through this passage as we considered servants and masters, when he tells the servant who belongs to Christ that he's really free, when an unbelieving master is actually a servant, a debtor to sin, he says, "Ye are bought with a price, be not the servants of men. Why? Because you are bought... With a price. What is the price of redemption? First Peter chapter 1, this is a, a message. I hope that you wrote notes to go and read all of these passages during the week. I'd be glad to send you a PDF of it. First Peter 1 verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, that means a lifestyle. You're not redeemed by tradition or religion or gold or silver or any such vain things, but with the precious blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews chapter 10 says, but the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot, who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God. Redeemed, a peculiar people. Lastly, these people are to be zealous of good works. They've been redeemed, and they've been redeemed from all iniquity. Every single sin that you commit, that you have committed, has been taken from you in Christ, that you should be what? 
a particular people zealous of good works. The word zealous here means vehement, and it can also mean to eagerly desire something. To what end has God saved you? Why did God save you? Well, He saved you because He loved you. But He also saved you that you would be a special people to Him in the world. This is why He chastens you when you sin. And it's why He blesses you in your obedience. And there is chastening and there are blessings in obedience. He has saved us that we would be zealous in good works. as his particular people. You might wonder, what do those good works look like? Well, I would encourage you to revisit the early portions of this chapter. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity, patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Those are the good works. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Sometimes we think that the good works are climbing Mount Everest for Christ. You know what they really are? Living a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and sincerity. Honoring your God by worshiping Him, studying His Word, loving Him, singing to Him, praying to Him, and helping people the way that He has helped you. May we be a peculiar people zealous of good works.